Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the tiny day-to-day stuff that I think we find really difficult. And it, and it was that sort of stuff that I really needed to take a deeper look at. And I still struggle with it. I don't, you know, the writing of the book was liberating and a catharsis for sure but I'm still on that path I I don't finish a book and go I've done that bit now Hi, I'm Sarah Wilson and this is Wild a podcast about living a more beautiful and fired up life Here we will continue my 10 year nomadic journey living out of one bag in search of more connection more awakeness less consuming, less loneliness, and less bloody scrolling. I'll be inviting you to join me in finding better ways to radically love and save our one wild and precious life on this planet. Today, we travel to the UK to chat to one of my favourite representatives of humanity. Fern Cotton is British radio and TV royalty. She began her career at age 15 as host of the Disney Club after winning some local competition and then spent the next 25 years broadcasting to the nation. Everything from Top of the Pops, BBC Radio 1 and 2, the Golden Globes, BAFTAs and a bunch of royal family specials. She's published 10 chart-topping books, including several kids' mental health books, is on the Prince's Trust and has a 3.4 million following on Instagram. She also has a podcast called The Happy Place that's had more than 40 million downloads. I mean, there's a lot of other things you could add. She's dated a bunch of rock stars, is now married to Jesse Wood, son of Ronnie of Rolling Stones fame, is mates with Prince Charles, has famous supermodel friends, all of which I knew little about when I first met her in her kitchen um, on the outskirts of London about three years ago. She made a cup of tea for me that she fussed over and I should just flag that she responded to my initial email where I reached out to her just to meet her um, incredibly punctually and said, come straight over. Anyway, we cover all of that off in our chat. To be honest, I know Fern only as a friend and as a social media pen pal type friend. We send VMs on WhatsApp late at night to each other when we can't sleep or when we're troubled. We talk about life and humans, not really our own personal lives, just big life, capital B, capital L. Fern has just put out a book about living honestly and so I thought it might be a really good time for us to have one of our chats that we have at lonely hours of the night in a phone-based volley but out in the open with you guys. 
Fern, my friend. Welcome to Wild. Oh, hello, Sarah. It's funny, isn't it? Because, you know, when we've spoken, well, we actually haven't spoken that much. We actually speak in VMs on WhatsApp, on Instagram, on text, and we send these kind of essays to each other, don't we? And we talk these deep (laughs) philosophical ideas. But what's really funny is when I was researching um, sort of, you know, the last couple of days into the life that is fern cotton or fern wood, um, I went down this rabbit hole of, of, of tabloid articles and, oh, my God, They've written like whole chapters about your life over the last 25 years. It's freaking full on. Yeah. So it's really funny. There's so much I didn't know about you. Oh, God. But half of it might be false anyway. I don't know. It's terrifying. Oh, yeah. I read it. I I take it with lots of barrow loads of salt. Yes. So I sort of thought it'd be quite interesting to get from you a bit of a background on your life as a kid. Like, you know, I mean, I mentioned in the introduction that you entered broadcasting at the age of 15 after winning a competition, but what was your life like sort of up to that point? Um, It was very, very normal, I'm happy to say. Um, I had a completely, if there even is such thing as a normal childhood, but it was pretty bog standard in the fact that I grew up in a a working class family, two very hardworking parents. My mum at any one time had three jobs rumbling on. My dad was a sign writer for, you know, his whole working life and he just retired. Um, Went to a normal school, lived in the suburbs of London, which um, for anyone who's not been to the UK is kind of not green enough to be lush and sort of bucolic, but not built up enough to be exciting. So you're just in kind of nothingness and it was fine but all absolutely fine um I have one brother and we get on absolutely brilliantly and it was all just kind of regular you Mm. know regular stuff but I think I always felt a sense of there must be something else not saying there must be something better but there must be other stuff out there um because when you live in the suburbs especially in a sort of working class environment you don't meet many other people from outside of that circle everybody you meet has the same size house as you the parents have a similar job you go to a similar school so getting sort of catapulted into the world of tv at 15 I was beyond wide-eyed I couldn't believe that just the the differences out there in in backgrounds and um affluence and and excitement the whole thing was just bonkers to me. And I think I still feel like that a lot of the time. I don't think you ever lose that rooting. Yeah. Um, so I still feel like that little 14-year-old, really. Yeah. I mean, you were sort of thrust into that limelight, but I know you as somebody who's quite introverted. I mean, that's been you all your life, right? You sort of, yeah. I, I think of you as um, wide-eyed and watching from a distance, but then you've got to go into it and be it and turn it on. And that's what you've really been great at is turning it on for the cameras, for the radio, for whatever it might be. Was it an act for you? Um, I don't know if it was an act because I was genuinely excited with, you know, a beautiful dose of naivety. I just couldn't believe 
this new world. So I don't think it was ever an act, but I was always very aware that I was extremely tired at the end of a filming day because I'm not boosted by other people. I'm very much drained, not in a negative way, like they're awful, but I just feel energetically low. So I always had the understanding and would sort of look at some of my peers and think, how are they working into the evening? Because by about six, I was just absolutely done. And, you know, I need time to recuperate. I need time to regenerate and and get my energy back. And I still, to this day, love engaging with people on this level um, for work. I see that there's a point to it, whereas sometimes just sort of random small talk for the sake of it, I just think I could so be doing without this. So there always seems to be a point to it when I'm working. But outside of work, I need to be shut doors on my own, downtime, quiet. Yeah, I think that's a really... It's a hard thing for people to understand about people who work in the public eye is that there's so many who are introverts. And it's a bit like a chef who puts on the apron. You know, you go out into the world, you do your job, you have fun, it's all show, but then you've got to come back, take the apron off and take on the other persona. Um, and it's so common, isn't it, in showbiz? There are so many so people like that. Common. So common. And I think because we're often a heightened version of ourselves, you're probably expelling even more energy because, you know, there has to be hopefully some resonance to what you're saying and connection mostly. And even before I started talking about mental health and well-being, when I was just, you know, when I was doing sort of entertainment TV shows or back in the day, kids TV shows, you still want people to feel happy watching it, to feel connected, for it to be escapism. So you have to give you're everything. And for some people, that is a a real equal transaction where they get the energy back from the audience or whatever. I don't. I just give Mm. all my energy and then I'm sort of empty. So I think you're giving out even more than you would if you were just kind of having friends over for a cup of tea or you were out in the pub or whatever. You're, You're giving your all to ensure that people you know, are, are getting something from your performance or your your discussion. So it, it is quite, t- I find it really tiring. Yeah, and there's a price to pay for it in the end. And I mean, I'm almost going to backtrack and start again in terms of how we always start our conversations. It's like, have you slept for? <laughs> no, I slept so badly last night. You know what, I had a really good night the night before last, and I was like, oh, yes, this is it. I'm on a little roll of great sleep after that ridiculous full moon that completely screwed my sleep up. And then last night, I just couldn't, I think I had, you know, like my tummy wasn't feeling great, which always affects everything, obviously. And um, and I just had a lot of thoughts rumbling on, and I couldn't quite relax. And I just had a very broken night's sleep. I got sleep, but I was probably waking up every sleep cycle. I was sort of waking up taking a pee, getting back into bed, hoping I could restart a new cycle. And, you know, I feel okay now, but not as good as I did yesterday where I was like, let's do this. I'm like, I'm ready to go. I've got all the energy Mm. in the world. So, you know, I'm kind of less distressed about it these days because I know that I'm more than capable of getting through a day's work on very little sleep so I can do it. Whereas before I would be thrown into like a spiral of panic that the world would end because I hadn't slept. But now I'm like, Okay, here we go again. Let's just give it my best <laughs> shot. This takes me straight back to when I was sitting on that couch just, you know, next to your kitchen and we were having a cup of tea and we talked exactly the same 
topic, yeah. didn't we, about how yeah. we cope with not being able to sleep and then the repercussions the next day and the freak out that we have and how to bring ourselves yeah. down from the ledge at four mm. in the morning, you know. It's, <laughs> it is so existential. It is, it is so painful. And, yeah. you know, when you tell me you haven't slept, I know the space that you've been in for the last, you know, eight hours. It's, it's hell. It's absolute hell. It is hell. Mm. And, you know, it's like what, when, I read, when I read your book, I I was just so, well, this is when we first made contact a few years ago now. You know, when you're talking about being awake at night and there was a point where you were sort of crouching on your dining room table, I was like, I've never heard someone write like this. This is the feeling. This is it. No one's articulated. It's not just, oh, I didn't sleep well. A bit of insomnia. I didn't sleep great. It's the sheer despair that you sink into because, first of all, you know that, everybody else in your time zone is asleep and that is just the worst. Lonely. Like, oh my God, I'm the only one who is awake. And obviously you're not, but it feels like that. You've got no one to talk to about it. It's dark. There are no distractions, quite frankly. And I'm so used to distracting myself from all the like little niggly problems. And then at night you're like, oh my God, they're all there in front of me, illuminated. I can't get rid of them. And it's really hard to get out of that cyclical mental loop that, that you end up in. So it's really wonderful to always meet someone who gets this subject and the horror of it without thinking, oh my God, stop being dramatic because it feels horrendous in the moment and no one can dissipate that feeling by going, oh, come on, it's all right. In the moment, it is hell. And it's yeah. really lovely to know other people that get it. Yeah, I want to get a little bit more granular on it for that point because I think a lot of people listening would probably like to hear a little bit more about how you cope with it because for 25 years or so you would be facing having to go onto stage, having to look bright and perky and put on that performance having had no sleep. What was it like at three in the morning when you've got no distractions and you're freaking out that you're not going to be able to perform the next day? What did you you know, what did you do to be able to then get up the next day and still do the job? What sort of went through your head? Yeah, it's fresh in my mind because I had a night of absolute pure hell about three weeks ago that I'll tell you about. But just to contextualise it, I only started having this sleep problem about six years ago. And I think through sort of excavating my own back catalogue of, you know, mental health and lack of mental health, um... It feels like the anxiety and the insomnia were a bit of a reaction to coming out of a depression. So it's a good thing, really, because I was moving from one phase to another and I'm I'm now still processing all the stuff that I felt deeply depressed about. So it's only been about six years, but I could describe the, the feeling exactly because about three weeks ago now, I had a hugely nerve-wracking job. I guess I can just tell you what it is because then you can really understand the sort of terror. Yeah, please do. Um, so I do a lot of work with the Prince's Trust, which is a charity in the... Well, it's global, run by um, HRH Prince Charles. And I've worked with them for a number of years and done lots of wonderful campaigns and initiatives with Prince Charles. And um, I was asked to go and host at St. James's Palace and give these awards out to these amazing young people who have done game-changing things with their lives and overcome huge adversity. And I, I love the award ceremony. It's a really beautiful, emotional event. But of course, the nerve-wracking bit for me is I'm on a stage with Prince Charles for an hour and a half, like just us two and his right-hand woman. And 
I've, I've got to deal with that pressure of I, I can't go wrong. I can't, I have to, I feel like there's this ideal where I have to be perfect in this moment because it's such an important and um, an honourable job to be doing something like this with a full audience of people who are massively deserving. So intellectually, I know I can do the job. I've done this a million times. I can stand on a stage and I can talk and I can read auto cue and I can ad lib and I can make it entertaining for everyone. But the horrible bit of my brain goes, oh my God, this is, you know, you're a regular person. What do you think you're doing standing on a stage with Prince Charles? That's absurd. You, you don't, you're not meant to be up on a stage in, in, a, in a royal palace. This is ridiculous. And that bit runs my body. So the intellectual bit, I can kind of cognitively go, okay, this is absolutely going to be fine. But then as soon as I get into bed and there's all the distractions have gone, I can't watch a TV show to block all these fears out. My, my body takes over and I still am at the place and I know it's, it's not, um, I don't have to live with this forever. I know there are ways out of it. I've got to dedicate a bit more time to the sort of therapy and practice around it, but my body feels like it's got a life of its own and my brain cannot control it. So my heart starts racing really quickly and I become quite breathless. So if someone said to me, right, stand up and talk, I'd probably be sort of talking a bit like this because my my heart and my whole cardiovascular system has sort of kicked in flight or fight. And uh, that is a runaway train. And I, and, it, and I get these adrenaline surges that sort of work their way up my solar plexus and my whole chest feels like it's sort of alive and and sort of open, like it's letting all this stuff in. It's very hard to, to articulate, but it feels very open and exposing. And I can't shut it down. I can't shut my brain down. I can't shut my body down to relax at all. So that particular night, I don't think I slept at all. I think I might have had moments where I was less in panic, but I woke up feeling hungover and just like shit. Got to St. James's Palace. As soon as I stepped in the door, I was like, I'm fine. I'm absolutely, like the nerves went, I felt a bit cold because I think all the adrenaline had gone. I went really freezing and apparently Prince Charles likes all the rooms really cold. So all the windows were open. I was like, oh my God, I'm like physically shaking. But I did the job and it went perfectly well and he was really happy and all the contestants who won these, not contestants, all these award winners, the beneficiaries were over the moon and it was fine. And I'm like, what the fuck was all that about the night before? What was that for? What a waste of time and energy. And even though I know I've, I can't get over it, it will happen again. Is there a side of you that can accept that that might be part of your process? Because you said before, and I'm, I'm sort of, you know, picking up on stuff we have discussed before, you, you feel that maybe the insomnia and the anxiety is a reaction to the depression. And maybe it's also... Alanda Baton has said it really well before that, you know, nighttime's the only time that we can actually have a discussion with our psyche, you know, without the distractions. And it's a conversation I know sometimes. Sometimes I'm lying there staring at the ceiling and I do find great comfort from saying to myself, Sarah, this is just what you've got to do to be ready tomorrow. Yeah. Is that something that you have come to accept over the years? Yeah. Quietly, you must have some confidence that you'll still be able to do the job. I'm definitely getting there. Like, yeah, there there is um, a small level of comfort in knowing that I'll probably still be okay the next day. Um, but, 
Yeah, I guess I, I've seen my own cycles over the years. And even before I had this sort of panic and insomnia, I would go through a not dissimilar situation, you know, the whole way through my career from the age of 15. Whereas when I knew something a bit big, um, substantial or scary was on the horizon outside of the stuff that I do every day for work, I get very irritable, impatient and uh, just edgy before something like that. And I can't have anyone near me. I don't want anyone touching me. I, I just feel on edge. And I definitely have accepted that over the years. And then I've also had to accept that after I've done that big event, whatever it is, I feel this gorgeous, quite addictive sense of relief and euphoria that I'm getting quite good at just leaning into now and going, right, I'm just going to go for it and really enjoy this. Um, mm. And then there will probably be a little bit of a low the day after that. Like there's these kind of undulating waves that I'm getting used to. But the panic at night, I find harder to accept because it's so painful in the moment. But I, I'm I'm definitely getting there. And, and I remember you know, when I interviewed Deepak Chopra on the podcast, you know, his sort of parting words on anxiety were the wonderful, you know, very well-versed phrase of um, whatever you resist persists. And and when you're in that moment, to kind of go, all right, bring it on. Mm. And sometimes the acceptance is, is within that sort of framework and, and that helps a little bit. Yeah. We've got to find our own storyline around it. And I found the Alenda yeah. Baton wisdom really helpful. Like, yeah, this is my psyche, just wrestling it out and and yeah. I have to do it to be able to feel good in a way. It's like when I used to do maths exams in high school. I would have to go to the toilet and I would have diarrhoea and I knew I couldn't yeah. perform unless I'd gone to the toilet and had diarrhoea and got myself that worked up. Yeah, yeah. Not a great habit to stay in because the adrenaline and everything can cause problems with your health um, as it did with mine but... Um, it's just finding the acceptance that our bodies are doing what they need to do. Yeah. And you're wearing your anxiety and PTSD because I know you've called it that. You're wearing it in your body as most people do. It's a somatic experience, you know, yeah, and it is. you're wrestling it out at night. If we can have a better dialogue around that, I think we'd probably end up sleeping better. But, of course, the fame and the being in showbiz, all of that kind of thing also took its toll because I remember when we were first dialoguing, you were having a rough time and you pulled back from one of your big gigs. You've done this a number of times. You did it um, just yep. before the birth of your second child. You did it when we were sort of chatting a couple of years ago and you've done it just this year as well where you've said, this is not good for my mental health. I'm pulling out. I'm quitting this big, big yep. blockbuster show. People go, oh, my God, you must be mad but you've made that jump, that leap of faith. And it's always led to great things. I mean, it led to your podcast yeah. and books. What part of the fame, the public eye stuff, the the relentlessness, what part of it was doing your head in? Actually, literally, like mucking around with your mental health. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's always really obvious it, it, for me. It's the... Um, the on mass judgment, you know, I'm mm. not built for it at all. I, I know some people that are in my industry and they're like, oh, it doesn't bother me at all. I just sort of water off a duck's back. It's fine. Whereas I am not built for that kind of feedback. And I'm not saying I want everybody to be going, oh, you're amazing. I love what you're doing. But I just find any on mass judgment in any way very difficult. And, um, and, I, and I take everything quite personally and I'm, probably hypersensitive. Um, 
so I find situations where I know there's going to be um, an uncomfortable amount of judgment almost impossible now. And I think I've been very fortunate in the fact that although I have left some big jobs, like when I left Radio 1, again, because my mental health was not good at that time. Uh, and more recently, I stepped down from covering uh, for Zoe Ball on Radio 2. Who's, she's one of my favourite DJs. I just love her and I loved covering her show. But it's, you know, you've got 8 million people listening all with an opinion and you're not the regular DJ. And I know that that's not a safe place for me to go and experiment with what I want to say. Whereas I've been very fortunate in the fact that the work that I'm now doing, there is a level of comfort that people who listen to the podcast, for instance, have sort of stumbled across it. They found it. They felt comfortable listening to it. You might still get people saying, oh, look, I didn't necessarily agree with that. Yeah. And that's fine. There's a difference between judgment and feedback. We'll always take on feedback to improve what we're doing. But when it is just very personal, acerbic judgment, I'm not up for it. And I've had to create my own boundaries and kind of call that self-care. Um, and I still feel sometimes uncomfortable with it because I think, oh my God, no, you need to take all the jobs. You need to keep working and keep this whole thing going. But I I can't. I mean, I don't want to get ill. I can't do it. Yeah, I know you take these decisions very seriously because, you know, you feel very responsible for being the breadwinner, for um, keeping up this level of focus. And I think that's something that whenever I read interviews, well, <laughs> In the Daily Mail. I mean, let's not take it too seriously. But you yep. are referred to as a very hard worker and it's almost like everyone's surprised that you're not just this person that shows up, you know. So you are very diligent. You take these things seriously. So taking that great big leap where you let go of this, you know, big gig and go into essentially the unknown, it's it's really hard for you. I mean, it looks from the outside that you make these big decisions. Oh, she's doing it for a mental health. She must have decided that overnight. Is that tussle really hard for you? Yeah, Or does it hugely. get to a point where there's just no option but to take the leap? I mean, there always does because that little whisper gets louder and louder until it's shouting and you're like, oh my God, I actually can't deal with this anymore. And some jobs have been like that where there's been a bit of an itch and then a whisper and I've gone, oh, maybe I should give it a go. And I do like risk taking. I do find that as well as it being scary, I do feel really exhil exhilarated and I love a new chapter. So it's not all bad news. I do really enjoy challenging myself. But also there is an element of my decision-making um, that's complex because I have got insecurities. And I think one of them is because of how I started my career, being this sort of blonde, bubbly teenager talking about cartoons and pets or whatever it was, I, I have an insecurity that I'm not taken seriously or I'm not, um, what I'm saying is of isn't of any worth. And because I adore the subject matter I'm discussing so much, I want it to be, I want my interviews to be as thorough as possible. I want my books to be as expansive as possible. I want people to um, understand that I've put a lot of work into all of this to really be the best I can. I'm not leaning on my celebrity, as uncomfortable as I am with that word. I'm not leaning on my platform to go, oh, people are just going to listen to this anyway, or they're just going to buy the book because they know who I am. I am not that person. And it makes my skin crawl to think that people might assume that I am that way inclined. I desperately want to be knowledgeable. I want to have read every single book out there. I want people to know that I'm invested in this for the right reasons, that I want to be part of you know, solution finding and 
helping forge connection because we're in such a strange, divisive world. I want to feel connected and I want others to feel like that. And that requires a lot of work. I don't want to just turn up and be like, Mm. hey, welcome to this, here's this. I I want it to be, I I want to authentically be me at work and to turn up with a lot of ideas and thoughts that are going to be helpful. And for me, I didn't go to university. I don't come from an academic background. I've got to put double the work in, triple the work in to some others who had a a different sort of education and, and background to me. It's funny, I I read your post you wrote for your birthday, your 40th, and you wrote about 40 realisations that you've had. Is one of them surely that you might actually have come to like yourself a little bit more, particularly around this idea of working and caring so much? Sometimes. um, Yeah, sometimes I can feel quite at peace with who I am. But those times are more than likely when I'm on my own. I feel really at peace with myself when I'm on my own. Obviously, that's not realistic 24-7. So as soon as I get into dynamics with work colleagues or even my own kids or my husband, that's where there's a weak spot and I can start to dislike myself because I can instantly go, I'm not being a good enough parent. I'm not... um, you know, being a typical wife in certain senses or whatever it might be, because I'm quite, well, I'm highly independent and high and like being on my own. So I sometimes feel I'm failing at what society tells us these roles mean. Um, And also with my friends, you know, I'm not massively brilliant at going out to dinners and partying because I'd prefer to be at home or I prefer to be working. So when other people come into the dynamic, I can often feel like a failure. And that's in the next decade where I'd like to get to, that even with my own idiosyncrasies and quirks, I can still go, nope, I'm cool being me. Gosh, you've just planted an idea with me that had never occurred to me that, yeah, I too like myself when I'm on my own, but only when I'm on my Mm. own, which is obviously (laughs) why I spend so much time on my own, just to totally dig myself, you know? Yeah, yeah, same. Like, when I'm in bed reading at night on my own, I'm like, I'm cool, I like myself. This is good, I'm peaceful, I'm happy, I'm cool with my lot. But as soon as the other dynamics come in, I'm like, oh, my, I have let this person down, I haven't done this, and I'm not living up to that. It's so complicated, and I really want the next 10 years to be working towards feeling at peace in all those dynamics. Do you relate to this? I love humanity, but I find humans really hard. (laughs) Because yes. humanity, humanity, you can stand back on your own and observe it and admire it and find it beautiful, this heaving mass of flaws and love and all of this and you can think poetic things about it all. Mm. But then a human comes and asks me the time and I'm like, oh, God. Oh, you know what, I think in, in equal measures I find I find human interaction super confusing but then... Also, I think through the work I've been doing more recently, probably some of the most beautiful moments I've had in the last couple of years have either been one-on-one with my kids and my family um, or these super deep conversations I've had with individuals that would never happen outside of the infrastructure of a podcast. You would never go up to someone in the street and say, tell me about your deepest, darkest times or whatever. So I find that sort of interaction unbelievably exciting and I'm deeply curious about other humans 
But it's so complicated. It never seems straightforward, you know, and it's all down to boundaries, I guess, and what your boundaries are, what their vision of a boundary is, what they believe your boundary to be. We're still usually so unclear with expressing them. I certainly am. That's where I get into trouble. So it's just so complicated. But I'm certainly not one of those people that's like, I need a whole gang of people around me the whole time. I need an entourage. I need to be out in big throngs of people. That for me is a bombardment of energy and opinions and things. And and it's too noisy. It's too noisy. Yeah. I keep trying. I keep dipping my feet in and then going, oh, yeah. God, no, this is not what I'm good at. <laughs> I know. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. During the COVID lockdown over in the UK, which was very, very long, and all of that homeschooling and everything that was happening, you were, I still think you were working in radio, yeah. you were doing your podcast, you also managed to put out two books, which is just mind-blowing, um, one of which is called Speak Your Truth. And it's a bit of a manifesto for living far more honestly yeah. and you know, kind of liking yourself, working within the boundaries that work for you. I mean, I think we've kind of covered off the fact that in many ways for a long time you felt you weren't speaking your truth, but it kind of it culminated, didn't it, at one point. And I remember we were talking at the in the early days of lockdown, you literally lost your voice. Yeah. Yeah, it went. I I, I was like, this cold is going on forever. What is going on here? But then it got to the point where I couldn't do voiceover work and I had a bunch of stuff booked in. So I saw a throat specialist who weaved a tiny camera down my nose, which was rather unpleasant. And this huge cyst on my vocal cords came into view on the screen in front of me. And it was so peculiar. This kind of pee was resting on my one of my vocal cords. They just weren't shutting. So all this air's rushing through and you just can't quite get to an, a note, of a, a, a sort of tone to get out of your, your voice box. So... It was so, it was such a curious moment. I, I wasn't sort of struck with, oh my God, what does this mean? And because there was obviously talk instantly of operations and voice rest. And I was like, okay. But I got in the cab and I just instantly was like, I know what this is. I know this little guy is there to show me that I'm trapping loads of stuff down here, a ball of stagnant energy that is just living here because I'm not saying what I want to. And I, and I don't mean just the big stuff like, this is what I believe in life. These are my opinions. Because yes, there's room for that, but that also is problematic. It's more just the day-to-day stuff of communicating in an authentic way without the mask on and without worrying what everybody's going to think of me or expectations people have. And I think we suffer with that 
more so than the big stuff because we can all get a bit angry on social media or get a bit angry to our partner because we're comfortable with them and we know that they still love us. But it's the tiny day-to-day stuff that I think we find really difficult. And it, and it was that sort of stuff that I really needed to take a deeper look at. And I still struggle with it. I don't, you know, the writing of the book was liberating and a mm. catharsis for sure, but I'm still on that path. I, I don't finish a book and go, I've done that bit now. I think it just shows me, okay, this is the work you've got to continue studying and poking around in whilst other subjects come into the picture. So it's kind of a lifelong one for me, that. What are some sort of aha moments or I guess realisations, philosophical wisdoms or realisations that helped you voice your thoughts and yourself and your self-worth that might you might be able to share with people? I think that the more in tune I became with the real authentic me, simultaneously I understood everybody else's authenticity, which is the way we connect because you can see your differences, but then they don't divide you. You can see that somebody else has a different lifestyle to you, has different opinions about things, has different, you know, religious attachments, whatever it might be. And you can view their authenticity in its entirety if you can envisage yours, but you don't then put up barriers. You can put up boundaries, very different things, but you don't put up barriers and try and um, create distance between you. So I think that became more and more apparent. The more in tune with myself I became and the more comfortable with myself, the more at peace I felt towards those who I've been challenged by before or have had difficulties with. I was like, okay, I can see these are their beliefs and this is their pain, more importantly, because when we get in touch with our authentic self, we have to recognise our own pain and and, and what's that what that's causing us to do and say. And I think when you get in touch with your authentic self and you go, right, this is, this is what I love, this is what I believe in, but this is my pile of pain here. And I can see in this situation, that situation, I'm saying this stuff because I'm hurting. And when you really do that, you can see it in everybody else. And then you don't take things so personally and you don't feel like they're against you or you're against them. And, and that... I'm still doing that now. There's still dynamics I have in my life that I find very difficult, but I can usually get to a place where I go, I can see their pain and I can see my own and it's why we're banging heads or whatever it is. So I think that Mm. unfurled quite organically throughout the book. Yeah, and I think it can flip the other way, kind of, if you're struggling with finding your own authentic voice, I think sometimes looking in the mirror, that is other people, um, and especially annoying people, like they are the best Best psychological the best work. Teachers. Yeah. Best teachers. I go straight to it. I channel Trump. Like when I'm yeah. struggling, I try and find compassion for Donald Trump. And I even, you know, I imagine him as a seven-year-old boy in pain, yeah. all of that kind of thing. And that then, would you say, can that then, that practice then help you find your own voice? Like it can go both ways? Yeah, I think so. I think it probably is a bit of a chicken and egg thing, you know. I don't think it matters which way around you do it, but I just think it is a good practice to notice your own Mm. pain and then someone else's or someone else's first, which might reflect back to your own. And a lot of the time we haven't done the self-inventory. We don't really know where our pain lies. It could be in childhood. It might be from one traumatic event you experienced. But if we can pinpoint it and understand it a bit better, we've got a little bit more agency over our reactions, which, you know, is a great thing to have. 
One thing, I'm going to get a granular once again with you because I know you go into this space. I think it's a particular thing for women where we find it so hard to find that sweet spot. And tell me if you know what I mean, where you keep quiet and you suck it up, you suck it up, and then finally something really bothers you and you've got to say something and it comes out angry and resentful. And it's so hard, isn't it, to find that spot. I mean, really the answer is to speak sooner, to be firm really early on with a smile on your face and then everybody gets to move on. Yeah. Do you struggle with that? Do you know how to speak sooner? And have you sort of had any realisations around that 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 have helped you? Yeah. I've been lucky in a sense that I've grown up with an incredibly strong mum. You know, I grew up thinking that mums were the boss and they made shit happen and dads were all really chilled out because that's my parents. My mum is tenacious, she's she's driven, there's quite a lot of anger there, but she turns it into passion. My dad is super chilled. He'll always say his bit and he's highly opinionated on some things, but he's he's very, very calm and relaxed. So I didn't grow up thinking that women couldn't have a voice because my mum has always had one. But I think getting into the TV industry, that's where I probably realised hmm, there seems to be some strange um, dynamics afoot here. This is rather odd. And I how... have a muzzle on my face. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also, I fell into some big traps with it because coming from kids TV, you know, in the UK, I don't know culturally how it's been in Australia. I'm imagining it's probably similar. But in the UK, coming from kids TV, to make the transition to adult TV, there were a few things that you had to do, in inverted commas, and one of them was a lads mag, because then you would be seen as a woman. So of course I go, I'm not showing any body parts necessarily, but I'm relatively scantily clad, wearing probably some hot pants and a vest or something. And I'm then accepted as a woman, and people can take me seriously as a woman, which says so much about British culture and if it's the same in in Australia. It is. In the sense that, yeah, you're not a woman until your body can be seen and objectified as a woman. Not what you can say, not what you're capable of. And I wasn't capable of the stuff I am today back then. So I had much less confidence in what I was doing. So I went, yeah, I'll do that. I'll, you know, if it means that I can do adult TV and I'm not wearing like pigtails and bright orange trousers anymore, I'll do it. But of course, looking back, I would never do that now. And and I, you know, I'm not saying it's a terrible thing. Some women really enjoy expressing themselves physically and that's a beautiful thing. But it wasn't natural to me. I did it for the wrong reasons. And were you advised? Did somebody actually literally say that? Um, I don't know if it would have been said like, this is the only way for you to do it. But it was definitely, here's an opportunity. It's probably going to help the momentum of things lightly um, advised. And, and you know, and it's just the way it was back then. Kind of everybody did it. There'd be a few exceptions, hats off, but most of us did it. And, um, and it kind of works, you know, the next thing I'm doing top of the pops and I'm in with all the bands and the cool people. And, you know, it's, it's so cliched, but obvious. And, and I think, you know, globally, and obviously it's way, way worse in parts of the world. It's archaic in parts of the world still. And, you know, yeah. I it breaks my heart every day hearing stories from certain parts of the world with how women are treated. But we're carrying this shit around. You know, only a hundred or so years ago, we got the opportunity to vote. That's like in my grandmother's lifetime. That's, that's crazy. You know, we're still carrying this stuff around that, you know, and also I guess... 
there's the, you know, I, I see it in small ways in my daily life now. You know, I'm, I'm working a lot of jobs. I'm balance, juggling a lot of stuff, but I will still be the parent out of me and my husband who gets the party invitations for the kids' birthdays or whatever it is. And there is an expectation that women can do all of this stuff without breaking. And I can't. I probably once a week feel severely overwhelmed and go, I can't do both of these things really well. And also, like you're saying, you know, do I do you feel strong enough to say your bit and do you have to be sort of friendly and smiley? That isn't expected of men. Yeah. You can go into a meeting, you can be really firm, put forward your specifications, what you need, and it gets done. Whereas I think with women still, it's like, oh, what bitch? Who does she think she is? And that that's, you know, me kind of almost making a caricature out of it. But I don't think it's dissimilar to the reality of of how women are in the workplace we've got a long long way to go how it plays out at the personal level it becomes really hard to navigate finding that sweet spot where you can speak up but you're not going to be accused of being Mm. shouty or aggressive and or mean you know and it's just it's really it's a very very hard space to navigate and I don't know if it's the same for you Fern but um here in Australia definitely yeah that that sort of um, movement from being a teen face to a woman I find it's actually in Australia what happens is you can only be a one-trick pony so you can't you have renaissance men men who can go and do a whole range of things. They can be an expert in this and they can turn to that and their career can be multifaceted like that. For women, it's sort of like, well, hang on, you're that person, you're the children's TV person or you're the music top of the pops bouncy blonde and it's it. people really struggle when you move into a new space. But move we must. Yeah, I definitely had that a bit when I moved. Yeah, like when I started doing all the happy place stuff, there was certainly I'm – I think, an element of confusion. Like, why is she sort of saying all this now? But I think because it's been incremental and almost accidental, I didn't sort of overnight go, I'm going to talk about mental health. There has been a sort of slow acceptance where my audience have felt like they could open up a bit more with me, which has been lovely. But I I agree. I think women are very pigeonholed and told, you know, stay in your lane. This This is what you do. Whereas I want to experience new chapters. I want to see women that I love experiencing new chapters. How exciting, how inspiring. That's the kind of women I want my daughter and my stepdaughter to to look up to. Women that have braved risk and change and done something new. That's the the coolest thing ever. Yeah. And in other eras they did exist and they were yeah. They were sort of heralded as these incredible women. Martha Gellhorn, you know, is one that I always I've been inspired by for a very long time. You know, she was a war correspondent and one of the gutsiest war correspondents and she would just like take off. All the boys would be drinking in Cuba or something and she'd just get on a plane and join the war effort and get all the stories while Ernst Hemingway, who became her husband, was just, you know, hanging out with the fellas. So, you know, and she was considered a hero. She became a friend of the Roosevelts, all of that kind of thing and was a real big player at the time. Mm, um, mm. Well, look at Trump. He he became president and he was a businessman. Well, <laughs> I don't think you could even call him that. He was a game show. <laughs> he was a reality television host at well, best. Well, quite, exactly. He was on reality TV. <laughs> but I think if a woman had gone from a more entertainment background to wanting to be taken seriously as a world leader, I don't think it would happen. Oh, Reagan was the same. He was a Western yeah. actor. You know, yeah. Can you imagine if yeah. Hillary Clinton, um, you know, had Who that pedigree? Who is one of the most 
you know, whatever you think of Hillary Clinton, she was she's pretty overqualified in the fact that she'd done her time in the White House before anyway. But, you mm. know, it, it still says we've got a long way to go, I think, with the female voice, I guess. One other thing that I've noticed that, in myself, and I think you have brought it up previously in relation to depression, is women's hormones. And I think you, in well, again, I'm referring to the Daily Mail, so correct me if I'm wrong. Um, they, you referred to the fact that in around about 35, your hormones had a big part to play. You felt in depression, um, which I think is is probably you know true for a lot of women. But I'm just going to throw this at you. I mean, I'm you know on the on the uh, darker side of, of 50, <laughs> cruising there at a rapid rate. Um, and this is something that I've witnessed, you know, your hormones start to drop off. They are changing and you're moving into a sort of a perimenopause phase and the estrogen drops off, etc. And as a result, women, I think, do find themselves having spent a lifetime caring so much about everything. All of a sudden the hormones go... And there's this availability to care but have less fucks to give about the wrong things and a whole heap of spare fucks to give about the right things. Do you think that plays into this idea of being able to speak your truth as you get older? I think it's such an interesting subject because we know so little about hormones. It's actually terrifying the impact they have on our general well-being and mental stability, yet we know so little. And I... um, my my sort of big period of depression that I've written about a lot in my book Happy and, and other work that I've done was um, much more sort of circumstantial rather than something physical that was going on for me. There was lots of sort of complicated things in my life that I found extremely difficult to process and still am trying to process now. But, and that was kind of my late 20s, early 30s, but I think the bit where our hormones do drop, and this was also around the time that, you know, I'd had my second child, there's all sorts of stuff going on hormonally anyway. I started to explore the subject a little bit further, nowhere near enough. I still have loads to learn. But I was asked the question by a hormone expert, tell me about your own hormones or what do you know about your own hormones? And I was like, literally jack shit. Like I I can't, I couldn't tell you anything. I have no idea. And the impact is so huge. And I think it must have a bearing on how we view the world and our perspective and also our confidence because I'm very lucky that I've got friends that range in all different age categories going up to my friend Bonnie, who's in her late 70s. Mm. Um, And these are dear friends. So I've got all these amazing women I can talk to about life and the phases of life that we go through. And the fact that we really need to honour these phases and lean into them. And one of my friends, Donna, who's in her 50s, she certainly, she says to me all the time, it just gets better. Mm. And I think for women, again, we're told that ageing is bad. Not for men. You know, you're the silver fox. You've got your dad bod. You're hot for women it's like you are fucked and and that is it you know everything's gonna sag you're not gonna look as good but all my women friends who are you know in all these different um decades of their lives say it just gets better like you've just said you care less about the stuff that doesn't matter you're invested more in the stuff that you know you care about and you don't care as much about the outside judgment because you're doing what is inherently right for you so 
I'm not fearing age and I'm not fearing the hormone changes anymore. Yes, we might have to deal with whatever the menopause and perimenopause brings, but we've dealt with periods for our whole lives. Do you know what I mean? So it's just more stuff for us to be dealing with. But when we look at how we express ourselves throughout that change, I think it's really exciting. It's a massive opening. Yeah. And I, I kind of describe it the feeling and I'm I'm not perimenopausal yet. It's just I can I'm heading that way, but it's I can feel an expansiveness entering my being. And yeah, I, I think some of the stuff that you've written about in Speak Your Truth, it resonates for me now, but it probably wouldn't have when I was twenty or thirty. Same. You know, so it's it's a life I mean, I sometimes say the answer to anxiety and to some of these these really tricky parts of being human is sheer years on the planet, you know? Yeah. Which brings me back to your list of realisations and reflections from your 40th. And I loved seeing some of the pictures from it. I think, was it Craig David sent you a pink cake? Was that true? Yes. Yeah. Like a sparkly (laughs) vagina. That wasn't the intention, but it it looked like one. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of them is that you've had regrets yeah. But that the regrets have very much shaped some of the best things in your life, but they're still regrets. Yeah. What are some of those regrets? Some of them I have such regret around that I can't even speak them out loud. And that's, again, what I have a lot of therapy about is, and I did very specifically uh, EMDR therapy where you have to go in depth into times that you really struggle to deal with on a memory level. <laughs> Horror. It's the worst therapy I've ever had, but Effective. the most impactful, mm. the most effective. So there are still a lot of regrets and most of them are just based around decision making. And if I peel back another layer, the bad decisions I think were made because of a lack of self-worth. I think I entered the industry that I'm kind of still in today, feeling like I wasn't just enough being me because... Who, who am I? I'm just some random kid from the suburbs. Look at all these sparkly pop stars. You know, I was instantly interviewing these amazing pop stars from all over the globe. How am I, you know, levelling up with these guys? I just felt like this is ridiculous. So I, my self-worth diminished pretty quickly and um, I felt I had to kind of build a character of who I was and for people to like me and accept me. So most of my terrible decisions came from not honouring who I knew I was and feeling that that was okay. And I still sometimes do it to this day, much less so and much less drastically so. But I I still sometimes feel like, am I enough to be accepted and, and liked as I am? What's so, you know, worthwhile about what I'm saying or whatever it might be? But I really, really drowned in it back in the day. So is the regret that you... You allowed so much shame and and so on to come in and influence your life and give you pain when it wasn't required. And is the benefit of that that it probably made you kind of be more on your game and be sharper and completely conscious of who you are and what you contribute? Mm. Or am I reading too much into it? No, not at all. I, I, I think the gift of it now is a willingness to show everybody 98% of what's really going on inside rather than the 1% that I used to show. So that that's the sort of the reaction to a period of my life where I was like in performative mode the whole time and wanting people to like me. Now I'm almost testing the boundaries like what if I say this about myself? Will yeah. people still accept me? And I see it as a personal challenge. So there has been a really good 
outcome from from a lot of it. And the shame bit, I don't think really came until after the decisions had been made. It wasn't as heavy as that prior to making bad decisions. It was just to sort of like, oh God, I'm, I don't mean anything. I'll just go along with what this person thinks is right. Or I'll just, you know, do the shoot in the lad's mag or whatever it might be, but much more sort of drastic circumstances. Um, and then the shame is now the thing that I'm having to deal with and sort of live with and rectify, etc. So yeah, I, I like exactly what you just said. I've I've got regrets, although some of those regrets have turned into having big, thick silver linings. Yeah, I I sort of feel that people who've had lives that have been colourful and they've made lots of mistakes, they're my favourite people. Yeah. You know, the grit is what I'm after. I almost don't trust people who have had really smooth lives and like themselves yeah. too much, you know? Yeah, I, I want to meet people at a place of pain. That's where I'm comfortable. I want to meet you down here because I've got loads to say and connect with. Whereas if we're at a party and it's just like, oh, my God, your dress is amazing. What have you been up to? I can't, I can't do that. I don't know how that dance works. I don't understand it. Whereas meeting you down here. I have to literally sit down. Yeah. I get such a, I get, it manifests as backache for me. Yeah. Like it's fully in my back and I actually, as soon as somebody starts talking at that level, I'll go, do you mind if we just sit down? (laughs) (laughs) I reckon that's something to do with your liver. From what I'm learning about classical Chinese medicine, the liver, um, especially for women that are similar to us that have, you know, a a big drive and some anger and some passion and all this stuff that's driving us forward, it's liver-based. And I think when you're in a chat like that, your liver's going, ah, fuck this, I'm not, I need to explode, I'm not getting anywhere here. And you're like, you physically feel it, you physically experience it. Yeah, I'll sit down and then I'm squirming, twisting my back and just, it's just horrible. Hey, (laughs) one of the things that um, I know that you have also said is that during COVID, when you wrote two books, you were asked how you came to sort of cope with the anxiety and the depression during that time. And I know that we connected quite a bit during that time and you would VM me from outside your son's bedroom. We'd finally got him to go to sleep and you were exhausted and you were whispering into the phone and just telling me just how just spent you were. But one of the things I think you did tell a reporter and they were really taken by it is you said, you just got really quiet and that that has been something of a salve to to your demons, you know? Yeah, yeah, I think it always is. How do you get really quiet? Well, I think it's different for everyone, but for me it's probably going for a walk, um, just walking and not letting the narrative take over too much and looking at the massive trees and going, you know, they didn't give a shit if I've had two seconds sleep or if I messed up at work today, you know, getting mm. some perspective. And and I, sometimes I've leaned too heavily into wanting wise friends of mine to help solve a problem. What should I do here? I'm feeling really awful about this. Tell me what I need to do. And actually looking internally like do I know that answer already I think I probably do if I'm to stop the reactiveness of this situation I just need to be a bit more still and just sit in it and actually then say to my husband look I'm not feeling very good right now these are the reasons I can be completely honest with you this has been a problem or this has triggered me or whatever can you just allow me that time to just feel not not great and and I'm not going to be my usual 
you know, chipper, organised self. I just need to sit in this for a bit. And and he's completely understanding of that and, and I am with him. So that's what I'm still trying to do now. You know, I think I learned a lot through this last two years and I'm, I'm still trying to do it. That's a really good example of speaking your truth. Yeah. Literally saying exactly as it is, exactly in that moment. And I yeah. generally find if, if somebody, if you said that to me, I'd love it. Mm. I'd just go, oh, awesome. Yeah, good. Yeah. I got this. Yeah. You know, I can navigate yeah. Rather you. than like, I'm fine, it's okay, and then be passive aggressive like 10 minutes later or something. Which, you know, is, which is often the case. Which is what we do when we can't yeah. find our sweet spot. You know, when we're not talking when we need to. But, yeah, that level of detail and intimacy, I think humans, we're really crying out for it, aren't we, to be told exactly where we're at. Yeah. And for me it's like I can navigate that. Yeah. You know, if I'm on the receiving end of someone like you speaking your truth like that, that's just so easy to navigate. It's a gift, isn't it? Totally. Because then you don't end up in an argument. You know, like if you think back to anybody you've ever had an argument with, and I can think of one now, the breakdown happened because there was a serious lack of understanding um, as to the feelings behind the words. You know, when you're saying certain stuff and you're trying to get to the point of something but you're not going, look... I feel in pain about this, I feel really upset about this, or I'm deeply confused about this. The words kind of don't paint the full picture unless you're really going to that that feeling. And, you know, all of my breakdowns with other people have been just a huge lack of understanding as to how the other person's feeling. Um, So, you know, I think it takes a level of intimacy that has to already exist to have that chat. Maybe not always, but I would feel more comfortable saying it to my husband than I would a new friend or a work colleague, Um, but it's not impossible. Yeah, I've got um, somebody I know who's in her late 50s and she understands the backache at dinner parties or cocktail parties where somebody starts up an innocuous conversation that you just can't do. (laughs) She'll often get so uh, vulnerable and intimate. She'll say, I'm currently going through menopause and I haven't had sex with my husband for (laughs) like three months or something. I love it. Yeah, and... no one is going to either, – either people are going to walk away or other people are going to go, I love it, tell me more. Yeah. Yeah, how's it yeah. feel? What are the symptoms, yeah. you know? That level that's, of vulnerability. Yeah, exactly. It's it's this level of vulnerability we're all craving. Mm-hmm. Hey, this is a random one. I've been thinking about it lately. I'm feeling inundated and I just feel like I've got munitions coming at me and it's stuff that I'm spending my entire day sifting through stuff and I'm not yeah. getting to the creative stuff that I want to do. I mean, it's the perennial problem in 2021. Yeah. We all get it. But you are a very caring emailer. You're very attentive and you're onto it. How do you manage your inbox? This is just the most ridiculous life hack ridiculous question. But it's it, on my no, mind at I, the moment. It bothers me every day. And I I don't like replying to people late. I don't want them to think that I'm not thinking of them or I don't care. So I probably do it to my detriment. I probably spend too much time worrying about have I WhatsApped that person back? Was I caring enough in my response? And then I get to the end of the day and I'm like, oh my God, I am completely overwhelmed by everything in life. And we've only been living this way in the last, I mean, really five years. You know, I probably wasn't using WhatsApp that much five years ago, like a little bit here and there, but now it's a total, the norm to have multiple WhatsApp groups you know, some of it's useful. Some of it is just like memes that you do not need to be seeing. Um, and and the, the the numerous ways we can communicate with each other, DM, WhatsApp, 
Facebook, Twitter, texting, voicemail. Like, it's relentless. And I need to remind myself that it just doesn't matter if you leave it a little while. So Mm. I, being a perfectionist at times, need to chill out on that one for sure. Yeah, I mean, I will get a response from you and you put so much care into whatever it is that you answer with. And you'll also be ridiculously apologetic if you are late in responding. Do you <laughs> I know, know what I mean? It's ridiculous. And it's quite British as well, I think. It, it is probably very British. <laughs> but I think, oh, my God, if she's doing that with everybody in her life, I must it must be exhausting. But then do you watch people who just literally don't respond to anything ever and go, yeah. oh, my God, you're still How? vertical having a life. How is that possible? I know. I don't know. I, I look at them in absolute awe because you're right. I do. I really worry that people are also going to think, oh, God, she's such a, you know, a showbiz twat or whatever, which I don't feel I fit into that category of like being in the showbiz world at all. But I just assume people are going to think that of me. So I make huge effort to go, no, I do deeply care because I also feel like at this point in my life, I've amassed this amazing collection of people and we're all on each other's lives and they all bring something beautiful to the table. And I want to honour that. I don't want to be flippant about it. Um, And also because, you know, like this year, I lost a really great friend really suddenly, a total out of the blue freak situation that happened. And I was full of regret and still sort of am like, why didn't I tell her I appreciate her more? Why didn't I buy that jacket that I text her knowing she would really like? Like, why didn't I show my appreciation of that person? So it's woken me up to that. I want people to know I value you. I might not talk to you all the time. I can't fit always into your expectations of what you need from me, but you mean so much to me. And for some people, that's difficult. You know, I've had a friend um, over the years... uh, get quite offended because I'm I'm not in their life as much as I used to be because I've got family and and whatnot. They're still in my heart. I just can't physically be there as much. But I do really want people to know that I value them. And I, I hope that I, I do that justice. If I died tomorrow, you can rest assured you've let me know how much you appreciate you know, the friendship and so on. So feel rest assured you've got to leave past there, Fern. Oh, that's gorgeous. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. Likewise. It's, likewise. It just touches me, the care that you put in. And I see it, you know, I see it on your Instagram. You you reach out to strangers, you let them know how appreciative you are and so on. And um, I think it's something that it's hard, isn't it? Because you go, oh, God, I put so much work into it again. Where's the sweet spot? And you've used the word lean in a couple of times in our chat. And I think the leaning towards the things that actually bring us happiness is the way to go about it. Rather than thinking you've got to have a rule, you know, we've had rules for so long. I think at the moment there's no way to compartmentalise, put barriers up here, know that that's the right quotient for the amount of, you know, personal time I'm meant to have today and the amount of family time I'm meant to have. You've just got to lean towards the things that feel really important and charming in any given moment. And for you it's always going to be a vibrant it's always going to be the vibrant stuff for you. Yeah, I think it's different to every, you know, as soon as we start feeling like, you know, our, our happiness is is wrong or we're leaning into the wrong stuff, you know, we're going to miss the point entirely. It's going to be different for everyone and it might be small and quiet for some, it might be big and grand for others. But we can't look on, say, Instagram and think, well, why aren't I doing that? Because that thing they're doing, a fancy holiday or whatever, might not make our hearts sing. We've got to do the stuff that 
that works for us. It's really important that we sort of get to know ourselves in that mm. way. I've, I've worked out at the age of, you know, 48 that I don't like leisure activities. I said it on a previous podcast episode and so many people have come up to me and went, oh, my God, I've realised the same thing. I yeah. don't like leisure. I like yeah. either being on my own hiking or working. Yeah, yeah That's- same. I... I'm not good at relaxing. I can't do it. I don't, I don't know have how hobbies. To relax. Yeah. No, I don't. I, my work is my hobby. I love it. Yeah, exactly. Hey, I'm aware of time. I know you've got to get going. I want to ask one last question that I ask most guests, not all, but if we were to lose it all, what is left? I'm going to say that again. What is left if we lose it all? What's left for you, Fern? I mean, this is probably the biggest cliche ever, but I don't think there could be another answer for me. And it would have to be love. And it's the most obvious thing in the world. But, you know, we get so attached to all of this stuff and these ideals and these goals and achievements. And sometimes they might boost us, but often they miss the mark entirely. But if all of it was to go, everything that we know and understand as being part of a modern person's life, there has to be love. You know, love is driving it all. And without it, you know, without that love, you, as we all know, easily sink into fear and um, and feeling ostracised and, and all the stuff that nobody wants in life. So for me, it, it has to be the simplest, simplest quality, and that is love. Yeah, yeah. And it's so nice to be reminded of that, especially from someone like you who is living it, I think, pretty fully already. So, hey, Fern, this has been an awesome chat. We've got to do it more often where we actually see each other and we're not, like, doing, like, little, little VMs on the fly. We have to. It's, um, but, you know, we're, we're going to do that hike together sometime. It's going to happen. When you're in my time zone, I'm going to be tingling with excitement about this hike. (laughs) So just a few quick things from the chat. EMDR, Fern mentions it in our chat, and it stands for Eye Movement Desensitisation and Reprocessing. And it's a very new type of therapy proven to be super effective with PTSD, but also anxiety, depression and panic disorders. I've used it a bit myself and it's, as we say, super annoying and challenging, but it seems to get results. It uses a patient's own rapid rhythmic eye movements to shift the trauma that is stored in the body and you follow a either a pen or some kind of tool that the psychotherapist will plant in front of you and they move your eyes from left to right. Increasingly, trauma is seen as a somatic experience. That is, it's something that occurs in the body where the response to the initial trauma is not shaken off and it remains in our neural circuitry. Each time we're reminded of the original trauma with a bang or an intrusive thought or just a mention of the person's name, this neural circuitry is activated. Look, I know it can sound all very woo-woo, but the American Psychiatric Association and the US Department of Defence and various UK bodies, as well as the WHO, recognise and approve it. And a lot of psychotherapists are starting to integrate it into their work. There's also probably two other points that jumped out for me in the chat. You can write a book about anxiety or speaking your truth And you can do all the therapy in the world. You can talk it all day on podcasts, but the trauma and the anxiety doesn't necessarily go away. What I will say, and I think Fern touches on this, the struggle becomes something 
that's somehow nourishing, even preferable to have in your life to hobbies. And this is something that I say to people quite often, do anxiety once. That is, get anxious, but then don't get anxious about being anxious. And so if you are somebody who is still grappling with your anxiety, then maybe the grapple is actually important to your life. Maybe you can look at it differently and see that that's what you actually enjoy spending time doing, or at least you realise it's an important aspect to your life. And I've found that this is something of great comfort when it's explained to people. Do anxiety, but don't get anxious about being anxious. The other thing that Fern brought up is that she likes self when she's on her own, but not so much when she's around other people. And I totally related to that. It was a bit of a penny drop moment. And for those of us who are so-called introverts, it's very easy to run from other people. And in my case, to take off overseas, but maybe for you, it's to just not go out. But the better life pursuit is to see other humans as the great training ground for growing and learning more. And so as Fern discussed this, what I thought was, you know, being introverted isn't a get out of jail pass from interacting with the world. It's actually a signifier that you are generally super curious and need to learn more via the best teachers, which is other people. You just need to sometimes have a breather and uh, recoup for a couple of hours at home on the couch which is not to say there isn't room to refine. You know, being artful about who we surround ourselves with is key. Something I often say is, you know, choose better profits, choose a better crew. I'll leave it there. It's always really good to get your feedback on guests. And if you'd like to contact me with some suggestions, please do. Instagram and my Substack newsletter is the best forum for that, sarahwilson.substack.com. And until next week, you stay wild. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.